Hello, and welcome to the Carl Road Baptist Church podcast. Be sure to listen all the way through to the end of the episode for additional info on where to find more resources for past sermons, as well as how to watch us live each Sunday if you can't join us in person at our Columbus, Ohio location. Let's prepare to hear this week's sermon and listen for what God is saying to you and what he wants to do in your life. Well, I was talking to another pastor about this crazy passage of the Bible, and he said when he read it to his kids, uh, just you know, out of the straight normal Bible, not a story Bible, there was a long pause. And then his 10-year-old was like, well, you don't see that in the Jesus Storybook Bible, which I thought was insightful. It is true. This one has not made. I've read lots and lots of kids' Bibles in my years as a father, and this one, I haven't seen this one in it. And I, I wonder if that's not theologically uh, it's not a theological reason, but uh, practical, because I just think about the questions, all the questions that my kids would ask if I read this story. Like, Dad, do I have a demon? Uh, what, what is a demon? Uh, why did he have owies? And uh, can I get super strength with a demon and break chains? And why did all the piggies die? That would be Ruby, our three-year-old. She's, she's a feeler. She's sensitive. She's like, I'm sad. She'd be like, I'm sad about the piggies. Um, so many questions, but honestly, that's, that's kind of how I felt <laughs> this week studying this text. There's so many questions for us in this, but he, here's what I got. This is just abundantly, gloriously clear in the text, is that Jesus is king, and he's, that authority as king extends over evil. Evil is a huge category, and none of it can stand against Jesus as the absolute king of the universe and today, we see specifically that uh, he is king over demonic evil. He has authority over demonic evil. And as we journey through this biography of Jesus, we're seeing that Mark, the divinely inspired author, is over and over and over again, almost systematically is showing us realm and area and aspect of, uh, after aspect of Jesus's power and authority. Last week, we had the epic story of Jesus calming a hurricane the way you would try to calm a petulant child. You know, hush, be still. And the raging waves became mega calm. And here we see Jesus get to the other side of the sea, get through the storm, get to the other side of the sea, uh, and face a demonized man with a chaotic storm of evil going on inside his person. And beyond all the questions about the details of this story, just the, the primary thing, the most important aspect of reality that it's trying to show us that we cannot miss is that Jesus holds absolute power over evil. There's no back and forth battle like the cinematic masterpiece, Pacific Rim. Uh, which my dad loves. That's the only reason why I know about it. But you have a ginormous sea monster coming up out of the, the ocean, and then they, the humans invent a ginormous robot, and they exchange huge blows in the middle of a city. That's not what we're talking about here. I tried to get an X to show up over that picture, but I was thwarted by, by technology. So picture an X over the picture of the monsters. Instead, it's more like when Ruby my aforementioned three-year-old tries to tackle me. It's like, oh, sweetheart, you know, I curl more than you weigh. It's, it's not a struggle for who is stronger. So when we dive into this story, which if we take it seriously, it's a scary story. It's an awkward, uncomfortable 
story, but we are diving into it, into this, this realm or this reality of demonic evil, secure in the fact that in Jesus, as his disciples, we're safe. Nothing can separate us from his love. No angels or demons or powers of hell can separate us from his never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking always and forever love. So three things we're going to look at today. Uh, we're going to look at the complexity of evil and that Jesus reigns over all of it. Uh, and then we're going to look at Jesus as king over demonic evil, specifically in our text, and the two responses to King Jesus that uh, present to us an invitation at how we will respond to Jesus. So look with me at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5 in the Gospel of Mark. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. So immediately Jesus is faced with evil. And what do we do as literate, 21st century, logical, rational, enlightened people uh, with this story of unclean, impure spirits, evil spirits of demons. You know, is, is, is the Bible old? And Mark and Jesus just didn't have the internet and all the science and technology and stuff that we know now about mental health and education and all that stuff. You know, we, we are, I feel like the, the myth of our society is that we know all the problems, we know where they come from, and we have a pill for all of them. But the Bible actually has a profoundly holistic understanding of evil and its many complexities. In my experience, every other worldview, every other story about what is the most true thing out there in the world simplifies or reduces evil down, is reductionistic towards evil, and it reduces it to just a part. And as a result, there's entire swaths of evil, all swaths of types of evil that go unaddressed, and people do not thrive. And Scripture alone stands, I think, um, as the only one who, or, or only worldview that can show us a holistic, complex uh, understanding of evil. Complex and holistic, but not chaos and overwhelming. So I just want to show the wisdom of Scripture, uh, particularly because as we dive into demonic evil, spiritual evil, uh, what I'm not saying is that everything is a demon. You know, your car broke down because there's a demon in the carburetor or like every single thing. Like that would be the other error, error where everything is a demon and would become superstitious. Or the, uh, but then the error that I think a lot of us struggle with is that we don't even think about the realm of demonic evil in most of our lives. So let's look at the first instance of evil. If you have a Bible, flip to Genesis 3. I feel like I'm flipping to the, the beginning of the story a lot, <laughs> unpacking these texts in uh, the Gospel of Mark. But Genesis chapter 3, it says, verses 1 through 5, it says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
So into God's perfect creation, where mankind just enjoyed being with God, and there was nothing bad and no one sad, the serpent, Satan, the devil, comes into the garden. And what does he do? He asks a question. Did God actually say? And then he kind of twists God's words. Satan muddies the water and obscures the truth, creates confusion, and gets Eve kind of flustered. And then he says, you will not surely die. What is that? What is that statement? It's a lie. It is just untrue. And with that lie, he reshapes the story, uh, the true story of this beautiful intimacy with God, where Adam and Eve enjoyed a loving, safe, and trusting relationship. And this lie takes this lie, you won't die to build a false story, which is the reason why God would put this rule into place to keep you from eating the fruit is because he might not love you. He might not actually be good. He might not actually want your good. And this is the great and terrible lie that is, if we can be honest, inside all of our hearts. And it's the lie that's at the root of all evil, that God isn't actually good and doesn't love or want my best. Look what happens next, verse 6 and 7. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So after this lie sinks into Eve's heart, uh, her desires are engaged. She then considers the fruit on its own terms. It was good for food, provided comfort and the security of a full belly. It was a delight to the eyes, appealing and attractive. And it was able to make one wise, to make one like God, significance. It would provide weight and glory. These three desires uh, that before the terrible lie were ultimately met in God are, are now sat, trying to be satisfied apart from him. Eve now reaches out and takes the fruit to satisfy these good God-given desires that he can meet uh, in, in a way apart from God, trying to get the creation the created things to satisfy instead of the creator. And she gives some to her husband, the only other human around, her other relationship, who unfortunately didn't say like, hey baby, let's not do this. Let's not eat this. But he ate some as well. And because of this choice, the world was shattered and broken. If we had time, we could keep diving in to Genesis 3, where we see the relationship between God and humanity shattered. They hide from him where they used to walk with him. We see the relationship between humans broken as Adam blames Eve. We see the relationship between humanity and creation, the natural world uh, broken as there's now enmity and toil and work and pain and childbirth. This is the origin story of evil and it shows us the essential reality of evil. Historically, theologically, God's people have summarized evil and the three great enemies of our souls, which is the world, the devil, the flesh, and the devil. These three parts of evil. 
Evil is a complex concoction of these three interwoven elements. And again, the Bible, I think, stands alone in its robust and holistic view of evil. Because some worldviews, and honestly, there's even sex within the church. There's even like entire streams of churches that might see, you know, evil as just one of these things. Like the problem is with the world. There's systemic issues in our society and we need to correct and reform them, societal evil. Or some people, churches might see it all as demonic activity. And it's, you know, there's, there's a demon behind every single thing. It wasn't me, it was a demon kind of thing. And then there, there, there's entire worldviews or, or functionality where we just think it's just people making bad choices. They had better education if they just knew, if they, it's on a personal individual responsibility. And the Bible says it's a blend of all of them. And Jesus is king over all of it. One of the most helpful explanations of how these three enemies, these three aspects of evil play out in our everyday lives comes from John Mark Comer, which I put into a grid. He says, evil comes when the devil sows deceptive ideas or lies about who we are and what we need. And these lies play to our disordered desires, wanting things more than God, which is our flesh or sin nature, which are then normalized by the fallen world around us. This is what we just read in Genesis. The devil shows up with a lie, with a false narrative, deceptive ideas. And those lies appeal to a desire, disordered desires, where we start wanting the created thing instead of the creator. And then it's normalized, accepted, approved, uh, even celebrated by a, a broken world, a society, a civilization with values that are not in line with King Jesus. We, of course, could spend many weeks teaching on the biblical theology of evil. But the point I'm trying to make is that evil is complex and holistic. And it comes for every part of our humanity. Every part of what it means to be a human is under attack by evil. And we must resist the temptation to oversimplify it. As we deal with broken relationships, as we deal with depression, with anxiety, with social injustices, all kinds of things, we must consider all three parts of the unholy trinity, if you will, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And I wanted to do that overview today uh, because we're talking about demonic evil. We're talking about the devil part of that unholy trinity. And as we talk about uh, the demonic evil, I'm not saying that our disordered desires, you know, our, our sinful desires or the fallen world, systemic injustices aren't factors. They are. The Bible teaches that. But in our text today, we see very clearly that Jesus has authority over demonic evil. And because Jesus, as the king, interacts with, acknowledges uh, demonic evil, then this is a category of evil that we, if we're going to be Bible-believing Jesus followers, we have to think carefully about. And we, have to, we have to embrace Jesus' teaching about and it, and it, but if you think with me for a minute, it's not a huge step. Like if you are here, if you happen to be here today and you believe in God, which at a philosophical conceptual level, God is personal, spiritual, good. Like he's a person, he's a being, and he's spiritual and he's good. And so the demonic then, the devil is, is the opposite. It's personal, spiritual, evil. 
It's beings, personal beings who are spiritual and evil. So it's not a huge leap to consider this reality as a, as a part of our reality. And to make it hit home even more, Scripture makes these terrifying connections from normal emotional or psychological experiences and problems and the devil. Let me just read one to you. Why, why I think this is important to spend time on. In Ephesians 4, 26 through 27, Paul says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Do not give the, opportunity, uh, the devil a foothold. So the scriptures just took something as abstract and mysterious as demonic evil and connected it with the emotion of anger. It was something that we think about all the time. And so when we're angry, and I'm not just talking about people who, you know, are throwing things or yelling and screaming, because some of us, some of the angriest of us are quiet, seething people, you know, with a raging storm underneath a stoic face. And what the scripture is saying is that if we let it fester, if we don't deal with that anger, it brings up opportunities for demonic evil to, to stir up chaos and ultimately destroy us. But I hope you see the complexity, just to, even in that one example, if we were to dive in, I feel like I'm preaching like three different sermons, on Genesis and Ephesians, sorry, hang tight. But I hope you see the complexity of this as we talk about that thought exercise. Someone hurts you, legitimately, like deeply hurts you. And you are legitimately a completely innocent victim to someone hurting you. But instead of processing that pain with God and anger before you, you start to get bitter. And over time now, you're starting to be controlled by this bitterness, which the scripture says grows from just being like an emotion in your own self to now being a, a foothold for the devil to destroy all kinds of things, to inflame it, to get you trapped in lies and destroy your sleep, your marriage, your relationship with your kids. Maybe you store it up until you erupt in a rage that takes years to recover from. Do you see how we could be both victims of evil, but then, but then also perpetrators of that if, we don't, if we're not willing to do our work to seek the king over evil and let him heal us. Let's look how our text describes this man's experience with demonic evil. Flip back to Mark 5, verse 3. This man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. It's an awful picture of a tormented man. And what really haunted me this week was that little word anymore. Like no one could bind him anymore. Because that seems to imply at some point they could bind him. At some point, people could contain him and rein him in, but he's gotten so strong from whatever is going on with this demonic influence that he can no longer be contained. And what this shows us is so important that there is a sense of progression in his connection with demons. 
In English, we typically use the terms like demon possess, which seems to imply like a switch, you know, it's like it's on or off, yes or no, demon possessed or not demon possessed. But when you look at the Greek words describing demonic activity, involvement with people, they, they almost never use words that imply like total possession. I mean, we see in our text, clearly at some point, there's a sense that people can be given over to demons, controlled by them, and that demons could speak through them. But the word most often used in Greek is demon, could be better translated demonized, which implies that people can become progressively more demonized. It's a, it's a range, it's a scale of demonization come more and more progressively under personal spiritual evil. And if you think about it, this is good news and bad news. The good news is that we don't have to walk around in fear, you know, living our life and bam, we're going to like the switch will be flipped and we'll be possessed. But the bad news is that little decisions made over time can cause us to be more and more influenced by demonic evil. One of my favorite truisms or quotes or whatever you want to call it is our choices become habits and our habits become our character and our character determines our destiny. Demonization can look like run-of-the-mill idolatry where we start making little decisions to try to serve or pursue something other than God that then invites opportunity for uh, demonic evil, demonization to happen. Maybe it's a relationship or a career or social justice or our video games or whatever it is. Th another thought exercise. Maybe your career is your source of significance. Not God. So, you know, like you wouldn't say that, but functionally that's kind of what you're in. Like I want to make partner. I want to be a millionaire by the time I'm this age or whatever it is. And so you're all in on that. And what that basically becomes is a deal you metaphorically make with the, with the devil. And I think if you think about it, you will get power from that. There's a power that comes when we, when we re, uh, put something other than God in worship. It will, it will give us power to work longer than anyone else, to not take our vacations, to run over anyone in our way, neglect our family, and maybe in extreme cases, you know, cut corners or even do things that are less than legal. And if that's the case, what do you think will happen in this thought exercise? You will make partner. You probably will make partner. I mean, you'll be willing to do more than anyone else. You'll sacrifice to get it. And then what? You'll realize once you get what you wanted, that you're just as empty, just as insecure and insignificant as you felt when you started this whole thing. And Maybe now you're divorced, estranged from your kids, lonely, hoping and living in fear you don't get audited and wandering around the lonely tombs of your office night and day, even though you could retire many times over because you made a deal. You went all in and sold your soul to career success. And that's all you have. Like, I got to wonder, you hear stories about people who are healthy and going at a high, you know, 10,000 RPMs, and then they retire and are dead like two weeks later. Like, could it be that they sold their soul to the devil? They went all in on work, and so retirement took away their soul. 
was trying to bring the concept of demonic evil into real life because it is i think it is true scripture teaches this sometimes demonic evil looks crazy like what we're seeing in our text you know super strength or your voice changing or heads spinning around like the movies show but oftentimes the devil can get everything he wants by simply helping you to get what you want other than god verse 5 Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. We, we, we would do well to be sobered and humbled that even in our modern, enlightened, scientific day and age, that we have the same self-harming problem that we see 2,000 years ago. I know self-harming is a very tender, tender, sensitive topic. And if that's a part of your story, we're here from you. We would love to walk with you through that. You don't have to be alone. Camille and I had a foster daughter a while ago who severely struggled with self-harming and it's terrifying and traumatic for her, for everybody involved. And remember, I'm not saying that all self-harming is, it, it, evil is complex. All self-harming is not always <clears throat> due to demonic influence. There's complex reasons for the struggle. Sometimes it's just a way to feel pain when because of trauma we are just emotionally numb. Sometimes it's a way to get attention in response to neglect. That was the case with our foster daughter. But I think we have to, in the complexity of evil, in the wisdom of the scriptures, of all the sources of evil, give some space, some consideration that it could be influenced by demonic activity. I mean, consider, if you will, the term used in secular psychology, intrusive thoughts. These thoughts that are dark and terrifying and seem to come out of nowhere and not from us. Like we call them intrusive thoughts, but do we ask the question, where do they come from? I'm not saying the answer is simple. I'm just saying, let's ask the question. Could the demonic be part of the complex constellation of evil, certain messages or lies being used by demonic evil to confuse you and alienate you and make you feel powerless and helpless. And again, I know this is sensitive, but what I'm saying is that often at least part of the answer to self-harm and mental health issues in general involves, amongst other things, spiritual health, spiritual care. Often it can be called deliverance ministry. Yes, coping strategies. Yes, even to psych meds. And, and yeah, maybe it's hormonal. Or maybe it's a mixture of all these things. And pursuing spiritual health as a part of your journey to mental health could bring the freedom you crave. And, you know, we have prayer after the benediction. I would love to pray with you if any of this is resonating with you. And it's the cry of my heart that we as a church family who follow King Jesus, the Lord of all, would be a place where people could experience healing and liberation from these things. I believe with every fiber of my being that King Jesus can and will offer healing to everyone that who asks for it. Verse 16, or verse 6, I'm sorry. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus has said to him, come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again to not send him out of the area, 
area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on a nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs. Allow us to go into them. He gave them permission and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Crazy story. Jesus asks for a name and finds out that it is legion. Uh, referring to thousands, potentially, of demons inside this guy. Just incredible chaos spiritually going on inside this one human being. And he begs for mercy. It's, it's crazy that he calls on the name of God to appeal to God, Jesus, uh, to not be tormented. But let's just see that the demons are terrified of Jesus. They know the score. They know that there's only one way things end for them. They know that Jesus is the king. And they request to be sent into the pigs. A lot we could talk about here, but do you see that they needed permission? Like, it's not like they got scared and ran into the pigs. Like, they couldn't do anything without permission. Faced with thousands of evil spirits, Jesus is in total control. Like, if you notice, he, he's barely even talking. The demons are blabbering, jabbering all over themselves and he is just calm and speaking simply and all that stuff and scripture seems to indicate demons don't like to be without a body uh, and so for some reason they want to go into pigs and they have to get permission and king jesus has to allow it again we, this is not the pacific rim they're not exchanging blows two big powers trying to eke out a win over one or the other. He's not uh, getting out his fancy robes and babbling spiritual incantations. Or, and most importantly, Jesus is not appealing to any higher power. He's not calling on any other name in order to deliver this man from demons other than his own. Because he's God. He's the king of kings. And he simply speaks out of his own authority. So if this category of demonic evil is scary and confusing, we can allow it into our, our mental maps, our understanding of reality without fear because Jesus is king over evil. Now we got to talk about the pigs for a minute. What is going on with the pigs? Consider with me a couple of things that commentators point out. First, Demons are chaos, overwhelming, destructive. Like that's just what they do, how they operate, who they are. And pigs, while wonderful creatures that can take, you know, an apple core and turn it into bacon, they're pretty limited when it comes to, at least compared to a human, in terms of what they can understand and experience uh, compared to human beings. And so consider the demons are trying to avoid being homeless and they appealed to Jesus for permission to just downgrade from, from a man to pigs. But in the weird mystery of how demons, unclean spirits, interact with a physical body, the pigs get overwhelmed and crazed and just plunge down a steep cliff into the water and, dry, and drown. Which would mean what we're seeing here is Jesus winning by giving the demons what they want. This is judo Jesus. He, he, he's giving them what they want. And despite the demon's strategy for self-preservation, the demons are stuck in the exact situation they're trying to avoid, being homeless. That's Jesus's authority over evil. Let's look at the last thing, the responses to Jesus. 
as the king. Verse 14. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons, sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man. He told about the pigs as well. The people began to plead with Jesus to leave the region. The two responses we see are one from the crowds and then two from the demonized person. What is the response of the man uh, with, to Jesus' power over demonic evil? To be sitting with Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. This is a beautiful transformation. This heart melting. This man was alone, staggering naked and bleeding amongst the place of the dead. And now he's clothed and in his right mind, sitting with the Lord of life, eyes clear, comfortable in his own skin, amongst friends for the first time in years. It's beautiful. What is the response of the crowds? They were afraid at this beautiful picture and begged Jesus to depart from the region. Now, contextually, the loss of 2,000 pigs would have been a, you know, region-wide economic disaster. So it's understandable. The, the crowds are trying to grapple with what's going on here. What does this mean? Um, but their hearts were not melted by the transformation. Uh, they're scared about the change and probably freaking out about money. And I think here, here's the thing we could consider based on these two responses. King Jesus brings deliverance, freedom from evil, but his power is going to dis disrupt life as we know it, life as we have constructed it. He's going to take away some of the power, some of the resources that we might have had to try to manage life on our own apart from God, the creator. I mean, presumably, the liberated man can no longer break iron chains now that he's been delivered. Jesus will call you to give up some resources, time and money in which you might have previously found a lot of security or significance from. But what we see in order to be with Jesus in our right mind, we must let him be king, even if that means messing up our status quo, our life plans. I experienced this in my life. I, I had an idolatrous desire to be a doctor when I was in undergrad, and I got power from that. I was, I was kind of a crazy person when it came to pursuing straight A's and setting myself up to get into med school. And I'd sacrifice sleep and friendships and money and all kinds of stuff. And when God showed me that I was trying to replace him with this plan to be a doctor, I lost some of that relentless like energy and striving that I could kind of harness to get good grades or whatnot. I mean, I still did my work, but my life force didn't, wasn't connected with it. It wasn't like, give me A's and, uh, or else I die. It was, give me Christ or else I die. In order to experience the freedom from evil, Jesus, uh, who is king over evil, must be the Lord of our lives. And that gets into the daily rhythms of our lives. It's not just like mentally agree, yes, Jesus is Lord. It's like, well, what parts of your day, what parts of your calendar are there because of Jesus' lordship? And this, friends, this is just discipleship. 
something that Amy and Pastor Rick and people here at Carl Road have been talking about for years. But what I hope we can see is that access to the freedom, to deliverance from evil in the power of King Jesus comes from following him. As the song says, to trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus. So let's bring up the grid of evil uh, from earlier. If evil operates through lies that play to our disordered desires and our flesh, which are affirmed and celebrated and normalized by a fallen sinful world, then our response must be to, to follow Jesus in each of these areas, to allow Jesus to be king over each of these areas. So how do we fight evil under King Jesus? Well, we allow Jesus to be king over the lies of the devil by submitting to truth, to the teaching of our king, i.e. the Bible, i.e. reading it yourselves and hearing it taught. Like right here, you guys are a part of fighting the lies of the devil, joining with God's people to sit under the word as it's taught. We allow the truth of God's love to be more real than the terrible lie that he doesn't love us in, in practical ways. We start our days with scripture, you know, before we check our phones or whatever. We, we, we stay, stay aware of, of the ratio of our news to Bible you know, ratio. Like, you know, what, are, what is the ratio there? Our Netflix to Bible ratio. How much news do we consume, uh, which is, you know, based on fear and outrage and out to make, get money off you, uh, or scripture that shows you the, the love of God you already have in Christ. We end our days with the psalm. Let God have the final word over our lives and minds before we go to sleep. We allow Jesus to be king over uh, the flesh, uh, the deceitful uh, desire, the, the sinful desires, bodily desires through bodily practices, i.e., spiritual disciplines uh, that can reorder our desires. So we allow Jesus to be king over our lustful appetites through fasting, like from food, literally. We allow Jesus to be king over our greed uh, through practices of simplicity and generosity, giving things away. We allow Jesus to be king over our temptation to work too much uh, to, for our significance or security by practicing a Sabbath, as he did, 24 hours where we rest and delight that the most true thing about you is that you're God's beloved child, that you're significant because he loves you, you're safe because you belong to him. And then we resist the fallen world, a society that normalizes and celebrates destructive lies by joining Jesus' follow, following community, which is what a lot of you are doing here and gathering with the saints, being in a triad. The local church is meant to be a counter-society, a society that instead of normalizes sinful, destructive lies, normalizes and celebrates the reign and rule of Jesus in the lives of our brothers and sisters. It's a group of people who are following Jesus to live in and under the truth and live with rightfully ordered desires. And so if you feel defeated by evil, like you're just up against the ropes with depression, pornography, broken relationships, anger issues, 
that feel impossible to overcome. Consider how you can allow Jesus uh, to, to be king over your life more holistically. Because what I've found the longer I'm a pastor is based on our personality and our wiring, like one or maybe two of those three things we're all about. Like I've, come, I've been at a lot of churches where it was a bunch of bookish, heady people. And so we're all about truth and doctrine, but we neglect relationships and our bodily practices. And we, and we don't experience... We don't experience the full healing of Jesus. Or maybe we love people. We love community and service and all these things, but we, we don't allow our, the Bible to align our thoughts. And so we get swept away with people pleasing and all the anxiety that comes from that. Or we, we serve people so much that we just go treat ourselves with too much food and neglect our bodily appetites. Do you see how we could be doing one or two of these things, but not letting Jesus reign in our whole person? which is to say we could leave entire parts of our humanity vulnerable to evil, vulnerable to the devil if we don't bring our whole selves into our apprenticeship, our discipleship to King Jesus. So two practical invitations. One, sign up for a triad if you're not in one where you can experience some, some intimate community with other believers. Uh, you can let me know or put it on your connect card. Stop by the welcome table. Um, the, the devil loves to isolate people. It's where he does his best work. The way of Jesus is belonging in a family. The way of the devil is lies and isolation. That's what happened to the man in our story out among the tombs alone. And he met Jesus and was seated with him and his people. And the second thing is to slow down. Corey Ten Boom famously said, if the devil can't make us bad, he will make us busy. It's brutal. But why is that? Why is that true? It's because being directly, explicitly, openly bad and simply being busy, even with good things, has the exact same effect on your soul. It makes you disconnected from God and others. You can't love people or God in a hurry. You can't love people in a frazzled state. And if being uh, busy sounds impossible to you, then I invite you to pick up this book. It's on our book table. There's actually, I think, only two left. So you can come and get this one. I think there's one there or get it from wherever you get books. Listen to it. It's on Audible, but it's just a practical book that unpacks some of the, the hurry sickness that's epidemic. In, I didn't even say the title. Let me read the title. The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by John Mark Comer. There you go. Uh, it unpacks some of the, uh, uh, the causes of busyness and, and then four simple ways that you can incorporate into your life to uh, try to slow down and open up your life to God. Let's look at how the story closes. Look at verse 19. Jesus said to him, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. It's significant that Jesus gives this delivered man some work to do. Go home, go tell your people what the Lord has done for you. And the man did. He proclaimed in 10 towns of the Decapolis what Jesus did. The Lord over demonic evil had set him free. And we too can proclaim what Jesus has done for us. There are some staggering parallels between the demonized man's situation and the end of Jesus's life or his earthly ministry. 
Because Jesus was exalted and crowned as king, not in a palace, but where? Outside the city amongst the tombs when he was nailed to a cross. And like the demonized man, he was naked and covered in wounds and bound. And he could have come down from the bondage, but he did and he stayed on the cross. Jesus is king over evil, over demonic evil. It's based on the fact, the event of the cross and resurrection. It's where he defeated evil. We read in Genesis 3 that God says to the devil, you will bruise the son of man's heel, but he will what? Crush your head. The cross was the devil's attempt to defeat Jesus. And for three days, it looked like he he had done it. But judo Jesus, the cross was really the devil just putting his head right by Jesus' feet. Because through the cross, Paul says, Jesus crushed Satan's head. He defeated evil and became king over it by absorbing it into his body and conquering it in his resurrection. Jesus has absorbed, has dealt with, conquered all the evil done against you and all the evil that you have done and opened yourself up to. And Jesus is king over all the pain and brokenness in your life because through his pain, through his broken body, through his wounds, we can be healed. Will you come to the king, the king who can heal you? Let me pray. Thank you for tuning in to the Carl Road Baptist Church podcast. We hope you found something that can be applied to your life today and into the future. You can always watch our past services or see them live on YouTube, Facebook, and our website at www.carlroadbaptist.org. That's Carl with a K A R L roadbaptist.org. If you search YouTube or Facebook, look for Carl Road Baptist Church. And don't forget to subscribe or follow us if you are watching via a service that allows that so you can stay up to date and notified when another episode is ready for you to watch or listen to. Thanks again for sharing your time with us and putting in the effort to maintain your relationship with God. Have a fantastic week, and we look forward to growing alongside you in the future with the next episode of the KRBC podcast.